Our text this morning is from Ephesians 2, 11 through 22, and you'll find that on page 976 in the Bible in the chair in front of you. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision, which is made in flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down his flesh, the, in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Good morning. morning. Really glad to be here. Want to make mention before the sermon starts of a couple of things. One, you sang one of my favorite songs today, this uh, Thank You Jesus song. Um, Reminds me of Melchizedek. I'm very tempted to change my sermon. I'm not going to. But Melchizedek was David's enemy in Saul's house. And he was lame. And yet David takes him and seats him at his very table. So when I sing that song, I always imagine, that's me. And Jesus took me from his enemy to his very table. And here I am, seated there with with you. So what a privilege to be here. Um, The company of Melchizedek, I'm giving the wrong name. It's not Melchizedek. Mephibosheth, <laughs> Mephibosheth, I'm the wrong chapter. Um, also, other thing I want to make mention of in Rwanda, there is a child sponsorship program called Re- Reach the Children of Rwanda International. And Martha Margaret is an ambassador for them. We do have with us a few child opportunities and like a folder we could give you. So if anybody feels called to sponsor Rwandan child's education come to Martha Margaret after the service and ask for that. Also, I wanted to introduce my son, Andrew, to you. He's in the green Marine sweatshirt, and he's hoping, he's hoping to be a student in Columbia next fall. So I'm hoping as many of you could meet him today as would be possible. So we're really proud of him. Um, also, I wanted to thank you, this church. Yeah, I've been here to preach a couple of times, and... Um, You've really become part of our lives. You're now supporting us in our mission. And I just want to say thank you. And we see that as a partnership with you. We're based in Rock Hill. I do a lot of teaching and training in um, Africa. 
So we want to continue that, you know, relationship going forward. And so just really thank you. Really, really just appreciate you. Um, the text has been read. So let's go ahead and pray and then I'll start. Father, so thankful to you that we, Mephibosheths, your enemies, that in your son, you gathered us around your table. Lord, we're going to end with communion today. Lord, in which we literally are around your table, eating the flesh and drinking the blood of your son, receiving his spirit into our hearts. We are so grateful to you. We pray that you would remind us by pouring your spirit into us as we partake of the wonder that it is that we would be seated around this table with you. In Jesus' name, amen. So Ephesians 2 is a glorious text, but it's not the most easy for us to relate to because typically in the West, in the U.S., and it's many times no fault of our own, it's just the reality of our historical moment, we are in culturally mono-churches, monocultural churches where most of the people that we typically go to church with are just like us. And it's hard to break out of that mold. And so a text like this that we read, is hard for us to relate to. We rarely are faced with the need to forge unity with those who are different from us, those who maybe hate us, that we're angry with, because that is difficult for us to relate to this text. Now, where we typically minister in Rwanda, it's a very different situation, as we will see. So I, this sermon is an invitation to walk with me on the journey God has taken me through. That has helped me to see what Ephesians 2 really means. And mostly from the Rwandan situation, but also we want to take a historical journey and try to understand some of the tensions that were between Jews and Gentiles in the early church because we don't really feel the weight of how difficult this text was for them, what was being asked of them either. So take a journey, take a walk with me. Well, I'm gonna give you my thesis statement first. This is what I wanna be sort of proving through the whole time today. My statement is, our union, our horizontal union with each other is as unified as the person of Christ. Only if he can be divided only if the hypostatic union, divine and human natures of Christ, only if he can be divided, can our union be destroyed in him. It is anathema. It is like a cursed thing. If it is anathema, if it is beyond the pale, if it's heresy to split the person of Christ, so it must also be to have divisions in his body because our unity is grounded in his person. That's my thesis. Um, so take a walk with me back to the first century church. If you imagine being a Jew in those days and you're a faithful, observant Jew. And this Ephesians 2 text is about uniting Jews and Gentiles together in the church, in Jesus. Imagine being such a you know, Jewish person. What would Gentiles have seemed like to you? What would they have been like? Now we're Gentiles here. So we don't think of ourselves in this light. But what would people like us have seemed like 
to you if you were Jewish in those days. First of all, Gentiles were gross. They were unclean. So coming in contact with an unclean person made their uncleanness jump on you. It was almost like if you came in contact with a dead person. You had to, you were ceremonially unclean for a space of time. So Gentiles were gross. Now what really made them feel that is the food laws. Because you know who you eat with determines who you can be with. Who you can be with determines whom you have relationships with, whom you have permission to live life with. So what the food laws did is they built in this fundamental thought, they're different from us, they're unclean, we can't be with them. Secondly, Gentiles persecute us. Throughout Jewish history, think about the persecution that began as slaves under Gentiles in Egypt to fighting unclean Gentiles to gain Canaan, to then being ruled by Gentiles in the exile. Your entire history, when you hear the history of your people from one lens, it is the story of Gentile persecution and thousands of years of hatred. Third, Gentiles make us forget who we are. They're not just gross, they don't just hate us and persecute us. They actually make us forget who we are. And just by being around them, their influence can bring us under judgment. So you look at the Old Testament passage about intermarriage. Don't intermarry with them because their idolatrous practices will sort of jump on you and you will forget who you are. You will slide down this trajectory where you will stop being who you are by the influence of the world and you will come under God's judgment because you become more like them than like me, is what God was saying to them. So gross, persecute us, make us forget who we are. That's who the Gentiles were to Jews in the first century. And so therefore, when we come to Ephesians 2, and Paul is saying, in Christ Jesus, you who wants these Gentiles, verse 13, you're far off, you've been brought near, Christ is our peace. He's made us both one. See, they would have been comfortable with the idea that we have a Messiah and he has made us remember how special and exclusive and wonderful we are. And he gives us his spirit. And now that we've been filled with him, and reminded of the awesomeness of our national heritage, we then minister to these other people. They're unclean, they're dirty, and we get to go help them. And that relationship, we could even see these Gentiles lifted up to a very high place. Now they're not where we are. But because we're so full of the Holy Spirit and so merciful, we minister to them and we lift them up and now look at them, aren't they amazing? That's not what Paul says. He says these ones who are gross and who are unclean and they hate us, okay, these ones who've been brought all the way in to Christ. They are in the Messiah with us. They're in the innermost circle with us. This would have been for many Jewish persons a non-starter. It was touching the raw nerve 
of who they were. It's not so much that first century Jewish people were being asked by Christ, by Paul, by the church to give up their privileged position. It's not that. Because if you think about it, if you're a faithful, observant Old Testament Jew and you hear that the Messiah has come, you're actually being given a much more privileged position in him. It's not that they're giving up privilege. They're gaining it. They're gaining access. They're receiving the Messiah that they have been promised lo these hundreds and hundreds of years. But they did have to give something up, didn't they? They had to give up the exclusivity of their privilege relative to other people. And that comes across in the text. Paul makes this statement in verse 15. He says that he might create in himself one new man, and look at that next phrase, in place of the two. It's not so much giving up your access or the, the height of your own position. It's giving up the exclusivity of your position relative to other people in place of the two. That you have to make a choice. Do you want the new unity that's in Christ? It's higher, a greater privilege, a higher access than you've ever had. But you have to give up the, the exclusivity in place of the two. Both of you have to give something up to gain something much far better. That's the idea. Now there's an example that I found in the book of Acts. The book of Acts works like this. It culminates in the later chapters, obviously. Doesn't take a genius to know that. But Paul had been told, even prophesied over by um, Agabus, if you go back to Jerusalem, the owner of this belt, and so Agabus tied his hands up, will be so taken up and arrested by the Jews there. And Paul goes anyway. Once he gets there, of course, the riot starts. He ends up making a speech, and it's going very well. He's telling them about Christ. He's giving his own testimony when the Lord appeared to him. And everybody's tracking until what? Acts 22, 21 through 22, until he told them what God said to him. When God said to Paul, he's giving his testimony, go, the Lord says to Paul, for I will send you far away to the, to the Gentiles. Everything else they'd been fine with. But it says in the next verse, up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. Paul touched the raw nerve. Not of their own privileged access, but of the exclusivity of it relative to other people. That's the raw nerve. Oftentimes we will give up access to the Lord because we hate somebody else. It's in the fallen nature. But yet the gospel is built for that place. It's built for the non-starter place where we say this far, no farther. The impossibility of reconciliation, the intractability of entrenched hatred and enmity. That's what the gospel's built for. That's what it's designed for. Diagnostics. Sometimes we need to ask ourselves, are we living like it's the Old Testament? In the Old Testament, monoculturalism. Yeah, we can get along. 
You know, you might have divisions in the church over whether we should have more Gettys music or more indelible grace music. Or we've got the Psalter faction that really thinks the hymn book is beyond the pale. We need to have the Psalters being sung. And so, yes, the gospel is for those situations as well. But it's, it's a little bit low level when it's made for the intractable place of hatred and enmity. Are we living like it's the Old Testament, being satisfied in a monocultural sort of bubble, right? Where does the gospel shine the brightest in the, against the backdrop of the impossibility of true hatred and, in, and enmity from the ashes? So that's a little bit of a historical walk through the first century context in Ephesians chapter two. Now, I want to ask you to take another walk with me in Rwanda. Some of this might be hard to hear. And as I say these things, don't think that I'm affirming even necessarily all the Rwandan perspectives. I'm just telling you what I've seen. I know there's in any crowd like this, there's people who've been abused, people who've been hurt, people to whom the issue of forgiveness is incredibly difficult. And I'm not preaching to you in the sense of telling you what you've got to do in your exact situation. You've got to walk that out. I'm just telling you what I've seen, okay? So take a walk with me. When I started going to Rwanda, when we began to go, it was only less than a year back, but they would sing this song where they would translate it to me and it's that the blood of Jesus has made us one. They would sing, the blood of Jesus has made us one. And I'd hear that over and over. And so I got, so in my prayers, I would pray that the blood of Jesus has made us one. And they would always cheer and clap and I would sort of wonder why. Well, in 1994, there was a genocide in Rwanda. So anybody 28 years of age or older came through genocide, the bloodiest um, you know, genocide that we have record of in the modern world upwards of a million people were murdered in a 100 day period in 1994. And so I remember going and preaching in a church last time I went and I felt like the Lord led me to Psalm 32, which is a famous forgiveness text. It begins, blesses the man whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. So I was preaching about forgiveness, the blessing of forgiveness in Rwanda. And my interpreter was a man named Prote. Now Prote is a bishop, he's a pastor, he trains pastors. So I preached this Psalm 32 message, which I felt like it was okay. It wasn't like the greatest sermon ever, but I could tell it was touching the people. And after the sermon, he said in front of them, he said to me, that's my life message, forgiveness. I thought that was great. Holy Spirit's just confirming his word. So go back to his house, he begins to tell me his story. Before I tell you Prote's story, a little bit of background, after the, the genocide, um, peace came, the nation was completely devastated. It's the Hutus and the Tutsis. You may have heard those, the two tribes. And the Tutsis were the ones who were murdered and they were the minority tribe. I won't get into the history of it, but after genocide, there were upwards of 120,000 people who were arrested and mostly rightly accused of genocide, neighbors, 
family members, people who like you had married into um, would, or your neighbors would turn you in and you would be murdered or your family would be. Many of these 120,000 people went to jail and those who planned the genocide went to jail with no recourse. But that amount, that raw number of people who were guilty is more than a small nation. It's one of the smallest African nations, very small. And that number of people is impossible for a legal system to actually deal with. Now, many of the perpetrators were executed, but Rwanda outlawed the death penalty in 2007. So now you've got from 94 to 2007, what do we do with these 120,000 people? Well, one of the things that they did is they reinstituted the gachacha system. The gachacha system is an old way of having justice that's based upon local judges. So they elected and they appointed local judges and many of the people, these 120,000 perpetrators, and they were, many of them, guilty of rape, murder, murder of children, these things are hard to hear. But one of the ways they dealt with it is, so 11 years after the, the genocide, Rwanda reinstituted the traditional gachacha system of jurisprudence, local level elected judges. And if a person would repent, confess, literally show where the bodies were, confess to the public, ask forgiveness, they would receive reduced sentences. The goal of this was national reconciliation for the perpetrators and the victims to live side by side. Now I know what many of you are thinking. You're thinking that, is that even right for these people to be seemingly let off the hook that way? And I'm not even gonna to speak to that. I'm just, I'm telling you what I've seen. You have to judge that on your own. I'm not trying to make for, for forgiveness you know, shallow. And I have no doubt that some of the people who confessed in such ways is not true. But Prote, after I pre I'm going back to the Psalm 32 sermon, he brings me back to his house and he begins to tell me his story. He said that during genocide, his, he got pulled out of his house by the perpetrators with his family and he got separated from his wife and his children. He said they were murdered. So he never saw them again. But then he got hit over the head with a machete. They tried to murder him as well, but he fell onto the road under other dead bodies and somehow lived. He wakes up from a coma or whatever at some later point and then wanders around for the rest of the months living off of you know, foraging and just trying to survive, which he does. So obviously genocide in 94, and then he goes through years, wandering from the Lord, sin in his life, angry, bitter, praying every day for the people who killed his family that they would die. And he said that the people who murdered his family were thrown into jail. And he said he was actually in the UK, and he was in a um, prayer meeting. He had a mentor, and he said during this prayer meeting, his like his the spirit just broke him. And he said he wept for like two hours in this person's arms who was mentoring him. He just wept and wept and wept. 
They said that God made him forgive. Made him forgive them. And he goes back home and he said the spirit told him to go find the people who had murdered his family. So he went to the jail, found out where they were. Rwanda is very small. Everybody knows everyone. And he seeks them out and they come forward and they think that he's there to kill them. They say, are you here to kill us? And he says, I'm not here to, and again, I'm just telling you what I've seen. And he says, I'm not here to kill you. I'm here to ask you to forgive me. And they lose it. They're like, why in the world would you be asking us to forgive you? So I need you to forgive me, he says, because God has shown me that I've been sinning. I have been sinning because I've been praying for your death for these however many years it was at that point. I'll say 10 years. And so they melt. They're all weeping. They begging him to forgive them, which he does. So this is right in that time period where the gachacha system is being put back in place. So he starts having seminars for perpetrators and victims. Now, I could never go into Rwanda and ask people who've been through this sort of trauma to forgive in this way. It would seem manipulative and it would in fact be. But because of what he's been through, he would have people in the same room. Of course, he told the story when it begins, they can't eat together, they can't look at each other, they're different parts of the room. But over the course of the week of this, you know, um, you know, seminar, he's teaching about forgiveness, reconciliation, presenting what the gospel is. And by the end of the week, they're hugging, they're weeping in this place of the impossibility of entrenched illegitimate hatred. The gospel is now the beating heart in that room. And he said there was, during that first like breakthrough week that he had towards the end of the week, he said they were still unwilling to eat together. They were willing to say, we'll forgive you on one level, but they weren't really willing to actually enter into relationship with the other side. And he said, it was like a spiritual conflict in this man stands up and he's weeping and he says, I need to ask you to forgive me. And Prote says, why? We've been together all week. And the guy says, because I murdered your uncle. I know where his body is. Will you forgive me? As he was saying, because of my guilt, I can't enter into a relationship with these people because I still have this issue. So Prote, when he forgive, when he, when Prote forgave this man publicly, the meeting broke open. And now everybody was experiencing that weeping he had had when the Lord had broken his own spirit. It just broke out in that place and there was reconciliation. Um, so that's, that's what I've seen. These stories that I've heard that are just like that have made me reread Ephesians 2 and ask myself, what kind of power is actually here? What do we have in our hands in the, in the gospel that we hold? What is this that we've been given? What is this heritage? What does it mean? And I want to point us back to Ephesians 2. We're, I'm, I'm standing here with a bunch of Gentiles, you and me. We're not on the good side of these equations. It says, therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. 
And there, he brings out these distance markers. It's what I call them, distance markers. He's telling us how far away we truly were. He says, you were, you're to remember. You're to call to mind, verse 12. You're to actively stir up the remembrance that you were at that time before the coming of Jesus Christ, separated from Christ, alienated, that's a distance marker, from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, verse 13, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So we were cast out. We were alienated. We were strangers having no hope and without God. The very fact that we are here in this room is evidence that the gospel works best. That what it is designed for is the, like the no-fly zone. The absolute intractability of entrenched enmity and hatred. It really is Im impossible. It really isn't possible for us to be saved unless the gospel works in that place. So what kind of a tragedy would it be for us to monoculturalize that which if it were monocultural, we could not be here. Do you see this? The gospel is designed for something more. The blood of Jesus has made us one. Verse 13, you are accepted not for yourself, but in Christ. How are we accepted? It says the law has been abolished in verse 15 by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. That language is so strong. We don't like it. We want to say, don't talk about abolishing the law. Jesus said that there's still continuity, right? In Matthew 5. I came to fulfill the law. How can Paul then say the, the law is abolished? How has it been burned to the ground, dismantled, torn down in our very sight this morning by this table? How can it be? Well, it has to be if the, Tutu, if the Tutsis and the Hutus are going to be one. It has to be if you and I are truly included in Christ. It has to be if Jews and Gentiles have been brought together in the person of Jesus Christ. Because the gospel has been abolished, not in the sense that it's not useful to us. The gospel has been abolished in the sense that it has nothing to do with how we get into Christ. It no longer stands over the entrance and says, only if you are faithful can you come in here. It has been torn down at the door. Now it's been given back to us in the inside as a way to teach us the beautiful life, teach us the blessed life. Amen. But it's no longer standing over the door, pointing the finger of accusation at us. And I think it's just here that Rwanda is a shining example for us. If they can forgive such atrocity, if they can be one in spite of the most intense genocide in the history of the world, what possible excuse could we have? You know, in Rwanda, there are no Tutsi and Hutu churches. You know, if you were to go and look, you can't tell the difference by looking at them. Who belongs to what? Rwandans are actually, by law, not allowed to identify themselves publicly by those names. They just say, I am Rwandan. 
What that means is that the churches are filled with both groups mixed and you don't know who's who. As I said, everybody over the age of 28 went through it. I want you to imagine that. Imagine what it would like to be a victim. And again, I'm just telling you what I've seen. Imagine what it would like to be a victim. The cost you would pay to to go to church to simply worship, knowing who was there. Imagine what it would like to have been a perpetrator to deal with that guilt. Imagine the level of forgiveness just to have a church service. And again, I'm not trying to make naive you know, statements and I'm also not trying to say they're deep, we're shallow, feel guilty. I hate those, I hate those sort of missionary messages. They're deep, we're shallow, feel guilty. I'm pointing to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what I'm saying is restored people, God sends restored people to broken places. So if there were some steps, I would, I would point to this beautiful broken thing. It's on the wall back here. It's broken. The stained glass hanging by threads, but it's beautiful. It's because it's broken that the beauty of Christ shines forth. It's in those broken places that the beauty of Christ shines. So the first thing is in your own life being, let the beauty of Christ come forth from broken places. Let the gospel go deep. Hearing about Rwanda, hearing about the first century church, hearing about those intractable hatred and enmity should call us to let the gospel go deep. But God sends restored people to broken places. There's very much a connect between dealing with hatred, enmity, racism, abuse, sin, failure, misery in our own lives, in our own culture, and then taking that gospel to the nations. How can you bring out that which is not gone deep? It's a call to depth and to discipleship in Christ. But again, our union is as unified as the person of Christ. Only if he can be divided, can our union be destroyed. There's not levels here. We don't receive Christ and then reach out to these people lower than us. We are the ones who were low. We were brought in. And so now we are bringing people all the way inside in Christ with us at level one because the law, the entrance requirements have been torn down in Christ. Or to say it in a better way, because he has fulfilled the entrance requirements for us by faith in him, we are justified. And therefore we have a mission. Therefore we have a gospel that does horizontally everything that it does vertically. If the gospel has vertically reconciled you to God, then it demands that horizontal, that very same reconciliation be among our relationships in our lives at every level. It's the same relationship, vertically to horizontally. If it is anathema to split the person of Christ, 
so it must be to have divisions in his body. Our unity is grounded in his person. So let it not be the case the gospel come all the way around the world reconciling peoples until it came to us where it then stagnates like a pond coming to a dead end. Rather may it be that from you and through you is the river of the spirit continuing to flow around the earth. May the water of the spirit come through this church and from you to the nations. The blood of Jesus has made us one. You know, all churches reflect the culture of the members of that church. That's well and good. But we must always remember that it is in the essence of our faith that many cultures come together in Christ. The nature of our gospel, the nature of our faith is aggressively outward. So I want to challenge you to reach out to those different from you locally in some form. Find a way. Who has God called this church to reach out to, to manifest the gospel in the midst of? What situations of hatred and enmity and cultural misunderstandings or racism or abuse or people who are down and out, people who are broken? How has God called you to be missionaries locally, not just across on the other side of the world? Reach out locally, tangibly in some form, some kind of way. Find the raw nerve. It's like Paul in Acts 22. He found the raw nerve, right? And he said, we're going to demand that the gospel be the gospel there. Everyone's happy until you get there. Find where there is in this community and insist on planting a gospel flagpole there. Don't be content until you get there. God will use this church in this community not just on the other side of the world. Find the raw nerve. There isn't a Jew Christ and a Gentile Christ, a Hutu Christ and a Tutsi Christ. There's one Christ in place of the others who is the common identity of us all. Which I'm gonna pray and that's gonna bring us to the Lord's Supper. Father, we thank you so much for your word. What I'm reminded as I'm speaking the way this scripture ends, that the glorious reality is that we are no longer strangers and, and, and um, aliens. But we are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Forgive us, Father, for the way we have treated aliens, the way we have treated strangers, the way we have often pushed them away. Give us a renewed sense of what you're doing in your house that we are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, and that your house is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. We are being built together. And when, he, when you say in your word there, we are being built together, it is very broad. Lord, you had in mind all of the elect from all of the nations that the gospel would ever go to and the amazing healing power of the gospel that restores our own lives and then you send restored people to broken places. Lord, let that be our mission. Let that be our vision in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.